0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1629.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the
0: great and heroic Bob Murphy has a book out, Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. This thing is going to give you a ton of intellectual ammunition. Check it out at Contra Krugman book. Dot com And I am the narrator of the audiobook version. How about that? You can get that for free through the Audible offer at tomwoodsaudio.com. At any rate, get all the details at com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Before we jump into the episode with Stefan Kinsella, let me say a couple things about what's going on with the podcast itself. This week, I'm going to be uh, cutting it off today and then really taking the Easter time for some just peaceful time. So that means Holy Thursday, Good Friday, I will not be releasing episodes. However, for those of you who are listening to podcasts this week and are gonna be disappointed that there are only three Tom Woods Show episodes, I have some consolation for you. The first is on this page, tomwoods.com slash 1629, I will link to my most recent episode with Michael Malice on his program, You're Welcome. And the... The episode title because he he tends to do on and then a word so ours is called on failing because of the the joke about my being a very or extremely failed podcaster because michael has appropriated some of the trumpian kinds of turns of phrase and so this kind of got out of control as a, as a joke about me as a podcaster but anyway so it's called on failing uh, an episode of you're welcome So that is an hour's worth of of fun conversation that can tide you over. So I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1629 during these couple of days. You can listen to that. And then secondly, for this week's episode of Contra Krugman, we're gonna do a special episode because Bob Murphy is not able to record with me this week because of the good news that his wife gave birth to a baby boy several days ago, and Bob is taking care of the family. So I am on my own. On Contra Krugman, but given that I've done so much stuff on this virus and the economy, I needed a fresh voice to join me. So I got Bob's old professor, Richard Ebeling, whom Bob got to know when he was a professor at Hillsdale. He's not at Hillsdale anymore. We'll talk about that on the show. But of course, you know Contra Krugman is the sister podcast of The Tom Woods Show. You can check it out at contrakrugman.com or anywhere you get podcasts. So that will also be available for your listening pleasure. So go and do those things. Now, today, Stefan is with us. You know him. He's an attorney. He's a libertarian legal theorist. He's the author of, among other things, Against Intellectual Property. Very interesting guy. Very, very precise in his language and in his thinking. Uh, something we could use in the libertarian world where there's, there can be a lot of, uh, let's say, muddled thinking. And I want to talk to him just about things not having to do with the virus. I'm not sure we're going to be able to stick to that but some general libertarian material I wanted to cover here on this episode. So here we go, Stefan. welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. All right, I don't know what the heck we're gonna talk about, I'll be honest with you. I'm gonna tell the audience I'm completely flummoxed by this whole situation. And I was telling you, Stefan, that the other day on Twitter, somebody said to me, thank you for doing episodes on topics other than this virus, because- I think I've had about all I can take on that. And yet I know on the other hand, there are some people who like me can't get enough of that. If They want to hear as many perspectives as possible and weigh the possibilities. And I hear you, I'm I'm with you on that. And I'll probably still be talking about that from time to time. But at the same time, life does have to go on and we have other things to, to discuss. So I just thought, look, here's my trusty pal Kinsella who knows a lot of stuff. Let's just get this guy on TV. Uh, on, sure. on the on the uh on, on the show. So I've got a face made for radio, Tom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I was well, I was thinking that because when <laughs> we connected, you, you you had your camera on anyway. All right. So um I want to talk about plain old libertarianism just for a little while, you know, because it's been nothing but it's everything's libertarianism plus the virus. I just want to yeah. do libertarianism, you know? Yeah. That's what the show's for. That's all. Not for pandemics. And I'm talking about that for, to some degree, but jeez. And I'll, I'll tell you this though, before we get started, I've been having a little bit of a field day on my email list because I have two email lists and particularly the business email list. I have really been hitting this, the virus thing pretty hard because that's where I can get it off my chest. I, I, I'll let you talk in a minute. <laughs> Hold on, just let me just lay this out. Because one of the things I've been saying is if you're involuntarily locked in your house, at least make the most of it. You know, come out the other side having done something. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm working on a project while I'm stuck in here. So I was urging people to do that. And what I found is my open rates on emails have exploded during this thing. Because every time I have a subject line about the virus, it gets opened up like crazy. I mean, marketers, other marketers would be absolutely you know, pleading with me. What is my secret if they knew my right. open... But but anyway, the reason I'm getting them is I'm doing headlines like uh, subject lines like here are two headlines you'll you won't read on Drudge or um, I, I had a I had a headline first non hysterical headline on Drudge. How can you not open that? I mean, what's what, <laughs> wrong? That's a with good you? one. That's you a know? good one. You have to open that because Drudge has taken the line that we're going to cover as many kind of outlying stories as possible, but outlying only in one direction. So finally, the other day they had a, uh, a headline glimmer of hope in Europe. So we, that headline we were allowed to have for about 10 hours. We were allowed to have <laughs> that one. Then they went back to the hysteria. Meanwhile, the head of the CDC just last night, as we're recording this, so when people hear it, it'd be two nights ago, said the actual death rate, or a number of deaths rather, in the U.S. will be, quote, much, much, much lower than these projections. He used the word much three times. That headline is nowhere on drudge we are not allowed to have that headline so i've just been talking about that on my email list and people are just opening it like crazy anyway i know that neither of us is an expert on any of this but we both have opinions on everything because that's the nature of of who we are can we at least start with your general impressions of the situation we're in it could be how the state is reacting it could be anything that you're that's been going through your mind since we've been observing this
1: yeah a few things i mean you know, we're personally, for now, to be honest, enjoying it. And if you feel a little bit guilty because we we have three computer workstations in our house, my son is working online for school, high school, just fine. My wife works from home a lot anyway. Um, we're exercising more. We're cooking more. I mean, you know, so far it's not too bad for us. Although I know it's bad for lots of people. I'm I'm worried that this could extend for a long time because I just don't know what the point of all this shutdown is. Because if you don't get. This herd immunity or if it doesn't spread, it's going to keep spreading slowly or come back. So I'm worried that eventually we're going to have some kind of hyperinflation or something. But I guess my main thought has been just realizing how fragile our economy really is if it can take this big of a blow when when we have a temporary emergency, which you will have from time to time in societies. And also this idea that we have a constitution that limits the government. I mean this whole idea of limited government, this is so obviously false. The government, when they say there's an emergency, basically all bets are off, and we all kind of know that. We've seen it before in other wars and episodes in the past, but they can do basically whatever they want. The government is not limited, and um, it shows you all these people that put their trust in government when times are good. I think they're fooling themselves, and then the other thing you and I were talking about is just… Think how good we really had it on a day to day level a month or two ago. Think, I mean, people libertarians complain about the the fascist police state we we lived in then, but it was so good compared to the way things are right now.
0: Yeah, if if I could just have that world back,
1: <laughs> I mean, really, I know, I know, you were happy, you were traveling a lot, yeah. and you know, um, I was traveling a lot and having a
0: great old time. And in fact, it's so funny how quickly. The World Can Change, because I had lunch with Gene Epstein in New York, probably on um, March 7th, 2020. I had lunch with him and was talking about trips I was planning um, over the next couple of months. And we were, and it was a question of, you know, there is an elevated risk now. So are you going to cancel the trips? And I felt like, you know, I just want to live my life. You know and I, I I realize there's a there's an extra risk here, but I want to live my life and right and we both and and he absolutely respected that and he, he kind of wanted me to have that view even though he's 75 and he's you know obviously in part of the population that would be most vulnerable, that was his attitude about his life. That was the decision he wanted to make and to think now that that was ever going to really be my decision. You know, it just shows how different the world is that I actually thought I would decide whether I would go on those trips.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if you saw the, the Texas lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick I think is his name. He He's in, he's about 70, and he came on, and he had this this little uh, speech on a, on a news show, and he said that he's a grandparent, and he says he doesn't want to kill his grandchildren's future by killing the economy basically just to give himself a little extra safety. He basically said me and most grandparents I know – we would rather take some kind of risk for the sake of leaving a world for our grandchildren. And I think most people think that. And then he got attacked by the left for basically saying we should sacrifice old people for the sake of big Wall Street profits. That was how they spun it. It was incredible.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. No matter. If you're just trying to say, look, I think there are a lot of considerations to keep in mind. You care only about your 401k. How can you have a conversation with somebody that stupid?
1: Well, but and the thing is, we will die without a prosperous economy. Society will die. This is life and death, too. It's, it's not a joke. Yeah. We need production and prosperity and wealth for the human race to, to continue on. And, and
0: not to mention, yes, there are unknowns related to the virus, of course. But there are unknowns to being in this completely unprecedented situation. That's, of course, there are going to be unknowns related to that. And there are all right. kinds of, of, of uh, deaths that we might call collateral damage from this. I mean, just the other day, I tweeted out about uh, what's going on in Indiana. They have a 211 hotline number for mental health. They've gone from 1,000 calls a day to 25,000 calls a day. Now imagine that just continuing. Mm. You know, maybe
1: that's a curve we ought to flatten. You know, hey. So, do you think some of your listeners are going? Wait a minute, Woods. I thought we weren't going to talk about coronavirus. Yeah, <laughs> I, but
0: you know, it just goes to show what happens on the Tom Woods show sometimes. <laughs> when I, I always, always use that example of the Beatles TV movie Magical Mystery Tour, because th- right. the idea was that that was going to be unscripted. They were just going to drive around. They figured something interesting would happen, and they would just record it. Because I'm sure most of the time they drive around, something interesting does happen. But you know yeah, the way yeah. the world is. You you actually get in that thing with your camera, and doggone it, interesting things positively refuse to happen.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so It's like, that it's like when you want to show – when you want to show your neighbors uh, how well your kid can sing or read or how oh, your dog can can right. sit, and the one time you say, hey, sit, but Muffy, dog won't yeah. sit. It's like, I, you, usually he does it. I promise. Yeah,
0: I know, I know. But I don't mean to suggest that in our case, we're going to have a boring, t- it's just more that they didn't know what was going to happen, they just got in there and went. And <laughs> I got you. I,
1: I got just got turned my funny.
0: microphone on and I'm starting to talk to, to Kinsella. Well, how about this? I think what we'll do is we'll compromise with the folks, the the people who want 24-7 virus, the people who want 24-7 non-virus. Let's take like the second half of our chat today and just have nothing to say about the virus at all. Okay, I'll ask you- Well, some- I'll
1: tell you what, if, if, if one of us gets the virus, then we'll, we'll, we'll have another talk and talk about that. How about that? Exactly. But until we get the virus, let's let's leave it alone. Exactly.
0: And, you know, the thing is, I, I'll i say, okay, we'll say one last thing because one of my um, college friends, in fact, on my Facebook page, my my personal one, I even have a photo in my college photos section of me um at dinner with this guy uh back when we were much younger. And that's David Latt, who was the who just was uh, discharged a couple of days ago after having been on a ventilator. He's two years younger than I am. He's uh uh two and a half, maybe. He's he's 44. And uh he was it was a very celebrated case in New York City because he's the founder of the Above the Law Legal blog. He was live blogging from his Uh, hospital bed until he was on the ventilator and it looked real things looked really really bad for him and then he made it out and he tweeted out that you know look i have people uh, you know friends who say that this hydroxychloroquine thing doesn't work and i have people who say it does and he says one of the people who says it does is my mother a pathologist who is firmly convinced that it saved my life now i don't again Mm -hmm. how am i going to know that so mm-hmm, I thought about mm-hmm. having him on, but he's on like, you know, at this point, good morning, America. Ain't no way he's got time for the Tom Woods show. So
1: when you were talking about- I don't know. I wouldn't sell yourself short. Well, it's I, possible, I bet he would. But I think I as
0: right now he's still recovering and he's really slammed. But in terms of, you were saying about having the virus, I would be very curious to talk to him uh, about what that was like. But let's instead talk about something totally unrelated. I want to talk about mm-hmm. young Stefan Kinsella, because because you have written a lot of foundational stuff about libertarianism, you know, like not not just uh, about, you know, not stuff like price controls or whatever, but, but stuff where you've really gone into areas where we really could use a little bit more work done. And you've done it, and you've done some original stuff. Um, but you must have come from somewhere. And I want to know You know, I started off as a kind of middle of the road GOP guy because that was as Mm -hmm. far as my father got me. And I'm glad Mm -hmm. he got me at least that far because he got me past at least the worst of the gross errors I might have committed. And then I took it from there. Where did you start?
1: Um so we're going to do the opposite of the one I interviewed you about how you got into Harvard, how I got into LSU, just joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> um I think I kind of had an interesting confluence of uh, like uh, aptitudes and um just things that happened to me that led me. So I was basically from Louisiana from a, a small town, rural area, but always was, you know, kind of bookish and smart and … went to decent schools, Catholic. I was raised Catholic, and um, – but at a certain point, I got really interested in philosophy and all that kind of stuff, and mostly because of Rand. Um, so I became really interested in objectivism and, and then then gradually libertarianism and anarchism. And because I kind of have more of a scholarly-type mind, like I'm not just someone who's a, a – you know an activist type of reader, when I went to engineering and then law school… And I went to law school because I enjoyed the verbal arguing and the legal, and the economic type and other reasoning. You know the human, the non engineering formula type stuff. Um, I started near the end of that thinking really hard about libertarian um, issues, like on a theoretical level, and that ended up. I went to uh, get a master's degree in London in law, a master's degree in international law in London in ninety one, ninety two, and near around that time. I started writing on my rights theory, like my estoppel stuff, which is based upon Hoppe's argumentation stuff. And I – when I got back to Houston and started practicing and then moved to Philadelphia, I I sent a copy to Hans uh, of of a review I had done of his book, which was very, very um, um, sympathetic, and uh, he loved it. And uh, he wrote me a nice letter back. This is like 94. And I was in Philly at the time, and I knew that they were having this uh, John Randolph Society or club meeting in Crystal City, Virginia, I remember, and Rothbard was going to be there. This is uh, like late nineteen, late 1994, and Lou Rockwell and David Gordon and Walter Block and Hans Hoppe. And so I got on a train and went down there, and that's the first time I met all these people. So I met Rothbard and Hoppe, and we – Hans and I became instant really good friends, and um, I had a nice, nice chat with Rothbard. And then he died two months later in January, right of ninety five. So I, I at least got to meet Murray, which was great for me. He signed my book, Man, Economy, and State, and all that kind of stuff. So um when Rothbard died, so instantly the editorial duties of the QJAE, the quarterly journal of Austrian economics, or was it the R I think it was the RAE then, um, and the Journal of Libertarian Studies had to be divided up. And so I think Hans got the editorship of the JLS and Hans and Salerno and one other I think did co-editing of the RAE, and Hans asked me to be his book review editor for the JLS because he knew me by then, and he needed help. And uh, And then I started going to the Austrian Scholars conferences every year and presenting one paper at a time on different topics like contract theory, later intellectual property, legislation and law, that kind of thing. Um, and then I started turning them into articles for the JLS and a few other publications, and uh, so my relationship with Hans grew. And meanwhile, I had a, I had a, a nice professional practice at a, at large law firms in Philadelphia and then in Houston. So I sort of had two careers going at once. Well, one career and one avocation. You know, you could call it one vocation, one avocation. And then that eventually led, and we can talk if you want about that. It led to my legal publishing. So I published a lot of libertarian. Type theory, legal theory, things like that uh, for libertarian or or economic audiences. But I've also published a good deal in purely legal areas, and that's mostly for money. That side was mostly for money or for my career as a patent attorney. And I can talk about how I got into that, which I thought was interesting too. But that's basically how my relationships have developed over the years.
0: I want to go back to something you said about um, Ayn Rand, because it's funny how much. Uh, let's say non-libertarians refer to her how often and they they think that she's all we think about when right i don't really think about or talk about her at all that that doesn't mean i'm i'm not the only libertarian in the world but it's like they know her they sort of maybe they know milton friedman the really smart ones have heard of hayek but they they really know nothing about us i I know all about progressives i know exactly i know the people they read i know what they think they they don't know any of this stuff about us but at the same time i i don't want to act like she deserves no credit whatsoever because i very much enjoyed reading her works both fiction and nonfiction. and as i've said on this podcast before i think the passage from atlas shrugged it's quite lengthy about the the 20th century motor company and how they implemented from each according to his ability to each according to his need is one of the best things on socialism i've ever read because I think that if a young person read that, that person would be forever inoculated against that. I've read that to one of my daughters, and it, and it's a long, long, long read. And at no time did she say, "Dad, is this almost over?" She was just right. on the edge of her seat. And so I I think people should read at least that. I think she's she's really fantastic. What do you think her pros and cons are?
1: That's interesting. So I so I I have a different view of Rand now than I did when I started. Of course. Um, I think she was at least until maybe Ron Paul. She was probably the the single most influential or um, uh, the lead into libertarianism. Right? She com- she caused more people to be libertarian than anyone else has. I think probably a, a distant second would be Milton Friedman, and now Ron Paul. But Ron Paul brings in more, I want to say unintellectual, but people that are not always you know they're more like. Intuitively libertarians and activist types, you know, young people who are interested in basic freedom. But the kind of more scholarly types, the ones that really get into the footnotes and things like that, I think that came from like uh, Rand and Friedman and then also Leonard Reed to some extent and Mises and Rothbard um, as the main characters in the 50s and 60s. Um, But so I think. I mean in some ways I would say I'm I'm an objectivist still because her four main tenets I agree with in broad form, like reason and reality and rational individualism uh, or selfishness, she called it, and and capitalism and politics. Now, her application of capitalism means there needs to be a state, and I disagree with her. I, so I think her main drawbacks is she insists that you have to have all the other aspects of her philosophy to be a good libertarian or a good capitalist. I don't really agree with that and i think her two main flaws other than personality flaws and the way the randians are sort of robotically randroids and humorless you know the humorless types that are, t- are way too serioso as Rothbard would call them i think her two main flaws um were number one her lack of anarchism which i can forgive you know a lot of the earlier libertarians were anarchists or something like that but it was just her 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 bizarre argument clinging to the idea that we need a state even though she said you can't have taxation so it makes no sense really she sort of I think she knew there was a conflict there um sort of like her views on abortion by the way you know she said a few things that you know you know it's just a ball of tissues abortion is a woman's absolute right I and mean, she said we can talk about the later terms that might be a different matter but she never elaborated so it's like she really wasn't pro-choice actually. for late term. But – um, and then her other big mistake is her rights theory, which is strongly intellectual property-based, just like Galambos and Lysander Spooner for that matter. Huge mistake in her entire theory of values and creation and the source of rights, and I think that corrupts a lot of her entire um, view of rights. So that's the biggest con. The pro would be…  … … giving people the sense that you have the right to live your own life, right? that you have the right to live for yourself, and that you own your life in a metaphorical sense, um, and the way it inspires some people who I guess get inspired by this stuff. But The Fountainhead was the first book I read, and now I kind of don't like the novel because the more I think about it, it's not really about libertarianism. It's not – it's about intellectual property terrorism actually. I mean it's a guy that goes around destroying buildings because he he's upset that his ideas were taken. Um, you know, so I think Atlas Shrugged is far, far better. Um, the money speech, Galt speech, the 20th century motor corp speech you're talking about. So I think Rand but one of the thing about Rand, a lot of people who haven't read Rand, they don't see that in her nonfiction writing and in her seminars and in the work of her some of her acolytes or students. There's lots of like little libertarian puzzles that they already came up with little solutions to that we use now, or that we reinvented the wheel. And if you just had a little bit more literacy about the body of objectivist literature, uh, it would give you ideas for how to think about certain things that libertarians sometimes now still struggle with.
0: Ah, well, that's kind of interesting to hear. What would be an example of that?
1: Oh, you know what? I've actually so here's I can't think of one off the top of my head, um, but. I know that like in Roth – so Rothbard was heavily in the Randian circle for a while. In Rothbard's writing, I've noticed five or ten times he will repeat an argument Rand had made before. Now, of course, he didn't give her credit usually because of the of the rift, and I'm not saying that she was the only one who came up with it like the Randians say. But you can see the influence even on Rothbard. Well, one of them I guess would be the free uh, – maybe the free will argument, the, the idea that we have to assume free will because which I actually don't know if I agree with this argument but we ha- we know that there's free will or you can't deny that there's free will because if you're arguing that there is no free will you're assuming that the person listening to you has to have the ability to choose to listen to your reasons and decide whether you're right or wrong so you're presupposing that your 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 audience has free will in the very attempt to argue there is no free will right so … little arguments like that, but a lot of the political arguments and some economic arguments. Um, but I do think that the most – like in my own thinking and my own development of libertarian ideas, the, for me, the most important thinkers per se, not chronologically who got me interested in it, but, but the thinkers would be clearly Mises, Hoppe, and Rothbard and the way they analyze scarcity and the radical view of politics and, and economics…
0: Did you go into this as a minarchist?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so when I like, – in high school, I was kind of a Randian, and I even hated libertarians because they, they condemn libertarians. And so when I would see libertarian party brochures and all that on campus at LSU, I would turn my nose up at them because I th- –… I believed Rand when she condemned them, and then I started looking at their pamphlets and like, wait a minute. This is exactly like Rand's capitalism, and, and so finally I read Rothbard, and then I became an anarchist like maybe around 88 um, and when I was in law school. So I was an anarchist by by then. It didn't take uh, maybe six years. um, But um, yeah, so by the time I met Hoppe and these guys, I was already an Austrian and an anarchist um, and a radical libertarian. So… To me, what was always most, and people know me now because of intellectual property, which is another interesting story about how that happened. I can, I can explain that. But my my main interest always was rights theory, uh, like Hoppe's argumentation ethics, and um, and my estoppel theory, which is is somewhat related. But I started writing on IP because I started practicing intellectual property about my my second year of practice in '94, and. I had always been bothered by the libertarian case for IP. So I started trying to come up with my own argument for IP. I thought I could do it because I know Rand. I know Rothbard. I know Mises. I know Hoppe and I know IP law. So I'm, I'm the one who's going to do it. You know, like I'm, I'm the one who's going to come up with a good argument for God finally or something like that. You know, and I couldn't do it. I tried for years and finally I realized, Oh, (laughs) <laughs> now I know why I keep failing. <laughs> I'm trying to justify something that's totally unjustifiable. <laughs> so I had to uh, knock down every possible argument and realize finally accept the truth. So I started publishing against it, but I was a little bit afraid to do so at first. I thought about doing it under a pseudonym because I was practicing patent law, and I thought it would hurt my career. But I soon realized no one cares. Clients don't care. Your partners at law firms don't care. All they care about is that you do good work, and you know what you're talking about. In fact, most people I found, if they find that I've written a long treatise condemning patent law or whatever, they want to hire me to be a patent lawyer because they assume I know my stuff. Yeah, no. So, like, I have never had a single negative thing in my career about about it. So, uh, I've gradually opened up and just freely. I've just freely become an abolitionist, and I say it out loud at bar association meetings to other patent lawyers, and they all just either roll their eyes or they give me a stupid argument or they just change the subject. It's weird.
0: Well, I just, I want to point out, this is episode 1629. So tomwoods.com slash 1629 is where I'll have the show notes. And that will include a link to the episode you and I did on patents a long time ago. People can listen to that. But I want to ask you as, given that you're a legal theorist in libertarianism, I want to ask you something I asked Bob Murphy when I had him on for a whole week of episodes We did a day where I said to him as a libertarian theorist, where in libertarianism do you think we're weakest and could use more Mm. work firming up our position? And I want to ask you the
1: same question. That's a good one. I remember when – I think I heard you – I heard that interview, and I was thinking, oh, no. hope he doesn't ask me that someday. (laughs) Uh, I sometimes – have the desire to write down a list of those kind of things if, if only like a, a research program for future scholars you know things that we need to work on um i well, hell i think this the current coronavirus thing is one thing how what would be the right way to deal with something like this in a in a private stateless society that's a difficult one something like that Uh maybe the issue of how could you go stateless in a world where there are other states like how could you survive surrounded by nation states? Um, you know, just the self-defense issue. Uh, you know, all these quaint notions about letters of mark and reprisal. I don't know. I think they're difficult. Um, I think more work could be done on this this issue, this thing that Bob Murphy and Hoppe and some others uh, uh, have proposed about using insurance companies as a means of you know getting defense police for, for services uh, crime prosecution that kind of thing um like how that how actually that would work what would the agreements probably look like in reality and how how would that function what would your life be like uh, like for example the standard argument i think even this might be an example of something rothbard got from rand because i think rothbard repeated this this idea that a nuclear a nuclear weapon would be considered inherently aggressive in a free society so it would be it would be effectively outlawed because there's there's no peaceful use of nukes, which is, of course, not true. You could use nukes to blow up an asteroid or something like that. But the the argument is that you don't need to have governments to, to limit the spread of nuclear weapons or to outlaw them in private hands because they're inherently aggressive. I think that was Rand's argument, and I think I've heard Rothbard repeat that. Um, but I would say – I don't think it's exactly that. I think that you just couldn't get insurance if you had a nuclear weapon because you're too dangerous, and so – If you don't have insurance, you'd be basically, you know, an uninsured person, almost like an outlaw, shunned, shunned in covenant communities, regional associations, shunned in society. You couldn't get, couldn't do work with other people. I think fleshing out how that would happen and whether it would be effective or not would work. So let's see. There's lots of other little technical issues which I also think are interesting. one of them is one I've struggled with and I haven't quite figured out or completed, and maybe I'll try it someday or someone else will. But it's a it's in the contract area, the whole area of contract theory, and I think you and I had an episode on this um, where we talked about Rothbard's contract theory, the, the contract theory, the title transfer theory of contract that Rothbard and Williams at Evers developed, and which I've developed a little bit too from the lawyer point of view because they're neither one of them are lawyers, so there's a few um you know simplifications in the way they wrote about it and and but it was it was just brilliant um but i've tried to use that basic framework to explain sort of the mechanics of contractual title transfer and issues like abandonment um but the one thing that's a little bit hard to wrap your head around is why a why a current transfer of title to something in the future … is effective when the future moment arrives. Now, I think it is, and there's a subtle argument to do it, and sometimes I have it in my mind, and sometimes it'll, it, it it slips my grasp. But um, because for our bodies, we say that you can change your mind. That's why there's inalienability in bodies. That's why you can't sell yourself into slavery because selling yourself into slavery just means that you're consenting now to future aggression. You can consent now to being hit like a boxer in a boxing ring. But if you change your mind and want to step out of the ring, you can change your mind and step out of the ring. And the guy can't – your opponent can't follow you and keep beating you up. That would be aggression at that point. And the reason is because even if you promised earlier that you would consent in the future, you still have – you can still just change your mind. Like if a girl says, at the end of the date, I'll let you kiss me, and then she changes her mind, the guy can't kiss her still, right? So she can change your mind. So the question is, why doesn't that kind of logic hold for Alienable resources that we own, like like your car or or or, you know your your knife, that you say I will give you this in a year or I'll give you this in a day. But what we say is that title transfer that you initiated on day one to be effective on day ten actually automatically happens on day ten because you've already transferred title to it. So in that case, we don't say you can change your mind. Now that's my belief, but it's hard to put a solid the only argument really for it is that if you don't allow that, then almost all contracts are impossible because most contracts are future oriented and have a condition in them. And if you don't allow title to be transferred in the future, then there's just no way to have a sophisticated contractual system. So that's a, that's a puzzle that I think someone could do more work on, but it would take someone who understands legal theory. And by the way, I didn't mention this either, but one advantage I had. In all this, I really believe is I went to LSU, which is uh, one of the few civil law schools in the country, um, because Louisiana is a civil law state. That is, the, their their legal system is based upon the continental, like civil code system of, of the of the French, the Napoleonic Code, and some of the Spanish codes, um, and plus they teach the common law. And although the common law is uh, superior in many, if not most, ways substantively to the civil law. analytically, the the civil law has many advantages, and understanding both perspectives, and especially the civil perspective, I think helped me understand some of the legal issues that you have to grapple with in libertarianism if you're doing libertarian legal theory. And let's face it. Almost all libertarian theory really is legal theory. right? Everything Rothbard talks about, you're really talking – when you talk about rights and what the law should be, you're talking about…  … … in a way legal theory, right? So everyone's really – that's a libertarian is trying to do legal analysis or legal theory. What laws should there be? Uh, so I do think that that helped me understand the IP issue better and some, some other issues um, like the contract issue too because the, the civil law perspective uh, gives you a unique perspective on all this.
0: … let me ask you one more thing before we uh, depart for today. … We could say that in terms of uh, anarcho-capitalism, Rothbard is first generation. I mean, I know that uh, Gustave de Molinari talked about private defense and all that. But in terms of somebody making a whole system out of it, yep. there's nobody before Rothbard. Right. But we've had more people writing about it since then. Do you have an opinion on, let's say, more recent generations? Where do you think the the biggest advances have come? Now, leave Leave the IP question out of it for now. Who do you think has been making the most valuable contributions, who's advanced our understanding, made the case more convincing, whatever?
1: I suppose that since Rothbard, there's a couple of bibliographies that I and Hoppe have uh, and a couple of others have compiled. I've got them on my website. I can send you a link for that too. Uh, Hoppe's was on the Lou Rockwell site. It was like an anarcho-capitalist bibliography. I mean, there has been a lot of People writing in the anarchist libertarian tradition, some of them are a little bit more consequentialist and utilitarian, and I don't think that adds as much. Not that all the empirical work is without value. So I think Bruce Benson has made a lot of strides. Number one in his the inter- is it the enterprise of law, um, yeah. … but that was fairly recently after Rothbard. Um, but I think Bob Murphy's chaos theory is an important contribution. I think a lot of Hoppe's stuff has been important, especially his his sort of comp- comparison and contrast of democracy and monarchy not to favor really one or the other… … but to kind of show that those two alternatives are both flawed and that really the only solution is not even a minimal state. it's It's anarchy… Uh, and then some of his uh, some of his insurance type and re- and covenant community ideas uh let's see who else um uh i i didn't personally get much out of jan uh, lester's uh against leviathan because his whole thing is based upon this i think f- completely confused and flawed popper paperian notion of critical was it critical um, Critical rationalism, or something like that, where, where you just basically you you don't have justificationism and you don't use utilitarianism. You use what's called conjecture, like you conjecture things and test them against arguments. It's, I think that's not a very good direction. Uh, I think the one who's our our Irish friend, um, oh, Gerard Casey. Yeah, Gerard Casey's book uh, is really good. That's a pretty recent one. That's was excellent. Um, Libertarian anarchy, I think, is yeah. the title. That's an excellent book. He's he's. He's an interesting guy because he's so smart and so learned, but he came – he seems to have just burst upon the scene fairly late in his life, right? No one had heard of the guy, and now yeah, he's – Yeah, and then all of
0: a sudden yeah. he, he's, he's, yeah. he's pumping out book after book after book, this guy. And, and one of them, he wrote a, a history of political thought that it's like the size of human action. Right, and I
1: think he did some of your courses too, didn't he?
0: Yeah, he did a course on, um, on logic and uh, uh, history of political thought. For Liberty Classroom, yeah, he's he's just tremendous. Now, by the way, you mentioned Bruce Benson. The Enterprise of Law is the book, as as you said, that people tend to be familiar with. But he had another book later that i read that I thought was at least as interesting, uh, called To Serve and Protect, and it was something like yes, yeah, privatization and and, and
1: criminal justice, and it was excellent. Uh, And then two, I guess, two or three other things I could I could think of to mention: Randy Barnett's book, The Structure of Liberty, which has parts of it that are way too Hayekian for me, but there's a good chapter. I think it's chapter 16 or something. It's called something like uh, A Polycentric Order of Fable or something like that. Yes,
0: yes, yes. It's a thought experiment of how it would work. I thought it was excellent.
1: Yes. That was excellent. That's excellent. Um, Also, there's some recent – more recent books by these sort of like seasteading guys. I think Quirk, Joe Joe Quirk, who I met, I think, in California. He's got this really nice book. On, you know, ideas about floating nations and seasteading and these, um, and I guess Patrick Friedman's done some stuff on that. But one other thing that's a little bit obscure that I might mention, um, have you ever heard of this journal called Formulations? It was by Roderick Long and some of these guys like 20 years ago or no. something like that. No, I haven't. It's, it's all online and it's archived and it was a bunch of these guys you, Like Spencer Heath McCallum or someone, and this – two or three other guys, you kind of heard their names obscurely, and it was one of these kind of mimeographed El Cheapo newsletter things sent out. I think it was called the Free Nation Foundation or something, and they had a split about 10 years ago, and so they they decided to split amicably and form two different groups, but they – they shared the, like, they both gave each other the rights to the formulations and they put them, one of them's got them online. I can send you the link. That's like one of these obscure little, it's sort of like the thing Rothbard did for a while, one of those little, you know, newsletters in the 70s or the Ayn Rand letter. But it's got all these really interesting theory articles like a constitution for a free society by, by Roderick Long and why free nations starting in the ocean couldn't have. Couldn't allow drugs because they would get killed by the other states. But lots of nice little thought experiments, sort of a lot of them along the lines of, of Burt Murphy's sort of shorter chaos theory. That's got a lot of interesting material that no one's ever. I kind of wonder if someone should take those and turn them into a, a an ebook. I mean, it would be easy to do. They're all on there, and it's it's kind of a a lost treasure, I think. So I can send you the link to that too. All right, yeah, that would be that'd be uh, great. So I'm, I'll actually link to the books that we've
0: been talking about if people would like to look at them uh, at tomwoods.com slash 1629. And then Kinsella here has uh, quite a bit of material on his website, and that, of course, is?
1: StephanKinsella.com. Right, Stephan um, Kinsella.
0: And if you call him Stephen Kinsella, you're nah, out of the club.
1: That's okay. I, I'm used to it by now.
0: <laughs> oh, no, i no. I'm, well, I'm going to continue enforcing it. To me, it's like who and whom. I'm, I'm well, dying on this hill.
1: I don't know if you want to mention briefly my book that just came out. Oh, uh, I but,
0: do. Yeah, well, yeah, would you I, – I did want to get to that. Say, say something about that because it's just days ago.
1: Yeah, and I was just – the reason you, you reminded me – so that that would be on my site, KinsellaLaw.com. So that's one of my legal publications. I had a book uh, published uh, um, April, April 2nd, just what, five days ago um, – It's the second edition of a book I published in 2005, so it took me 15 years to find a couple of co-authors to help me update it. Um, But it's called uh, International Investment, Political Risk, and Dispute Resolution, a Practitioner's Guide. This is one of those like 600-page scholarly but practical practitioner's guides for for lawyers and international arbitration groups and law firms and law professors. It's even used in some law schools as a course on this issue, but… It's not libertarian, but it's about how to protect your investments if you're like a large company having like a factory or or an oil field or something in Saudi Arabia or in Costa Rica or whatever, somewhere where you're afraid that the government might basically expropriate your property. It's different things you can do under international law uh to protect your investments. But um what I was gonna say was and that's at KinsellaLaw.com, but there there are two Stephen Kinsella's. In Europe, that are spell their name with an e, s t e p h e n, and one is one is a, a lawyer in in at Sidley in Austin in London, and one is an Irish economist, a kind of a left wing economist. And on occasion, someone will send one of those two guys an an email or something meant for me, and they'll send it on to me. So we three know each other by now. But the funny thing was, my publisher, Oxford, f- until like last week, they had Stephen Kinsella From Sidley and Austin listed on their website for the book as the author, author. and I kept telling them, that's not me. You have the wrong guy up there. (laughs) It took me nine months to get them to change the listing to to reflect the right author of my own book. I haven't gotten my copy of the book yet. I hope when I get it, it says my name instead of Stephen Gonsalus. That'd be nice. (laughs) It might be nice for him. (laughs) Yeah, and for him too. I mean, I you know, there's another
0: Robert Murphy out there who's an economist, and my gosh, the grief that guy must get.
1: Uh, yeah, I I, I agree. It's, it, yeah, it's it's funny. Um, so that's all I'll say. But I was I'm proud of this book. It's it's nice. It'll probably be another 15 years before we update it again. But it's it's this going to be the book on this on this area. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that was that was good to work with Oxford and- uh, Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah,
0: congratulations on that. I was very glad to hear about that. So we'll have a bunch of stuff up, tomwoods.com slash 1629. And uh, thanks for at least, I would say 60% of the episode. And the rest was all my fault, keeping our minds off the damn virus. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Tom. Okay, finally, one thing before we wrap up for today. I do, I actually want to correct something I said I think when I was with Dave Smith and I ran that as a as an episode of my show, I said that there's sure to be some significant price inflation as a result of what they're doing. I'm actually, I, I thought that through. And when we did a Liberty Classroom Q&A with Jeff Herbner within the past week, as I was thinking it through out loud, I realized with well, a mistake there. Because yeah, they're sending out checks to everybody. But if everybody gets a $1,200 check when they used to earn $5,000, <laughs> that's not, going to cause a problem. The problem would come from what the Fed is doing. But what the Fed is doing, if it winds up affecting the economy at all, it's going to go into the financial markets. And it's probably not going to have that much of an effect on consumer prices. That's, that would be my thinking. So I think I, I spoke too soon and, and I was uh, careless in working that out in my head. So this is where I stand right now. We can talk about this in the future, but I could not enjoy my Easter without getting that off my chest. All right, so check out tomwoods.com slash 1629. You'll find the link to my episode with Michael Malice. That'll keep you, uh, I hope, happy until The Tom Woods Show returns next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.